If you are someone who wants to live like Christ, I do believe that reading books in which you see examples, you see narratives about how that philosophy is embodied, how these people actually live out their faith. I do think that that's efficacious. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Jessica Hooten Wilson is the Louise Cowan Scholar in Residence at the University of Dallas. She has written books about Flannery O'Connor, Fyodor Dostoevsky, Walker Percy, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Her most recent book is The Scandal of Holiness, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints. In it, Dr. Wilson argues that reading great works of literature cultivates an imagination that moves us toward holiness. Lauren Winter has said of the book, I'll be conversing with, riffing on, and returning to the scandal of holiness for months and years to come. Because although it is not fiction, like the best fiction, the scandal of holiness prods the imagination. It opens out. It exceeds itself. Jessica Wilson, I am so glad that you are on the Habit Podcast again. You've been here before. Yeah, it's one of my favorite podcasts to be on and to listen to. Excellent. Uh, you don't rattle that bottle anymore, please, on my podcast. I'm putting it up. I'm putting it up. I'm putting it up. Uh, so you've got a new book. I, I think we're releasing this episode the same week the book comes out. Scandal of Holiness, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints. I do. I'm excited. This has been a long time coming for me. Uh, how long have you been working on it? The idea came to me in 2014 when uh-huh. I was overseas in Prague and teaching uh, religious literature. Mm-hmm. in Prague, in the most atheist country in Europe. <laughs> so you said the idea came to you. What idea mm-hmm. came to you? The idea that I needed to investigate the lives of those who pursue pursue holiness. Like, what does that look like in a life? And the best way, of course, as a literature PhD to know how to do that was to look at novels. Mm-hmm. So I thought I would start investigating what that looked like and really examine these holy figures or these figures that want to be holy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so I started doing that and started teaching classes on it and started writing about it, reading all the books I could that had anything to do with that. So any, not only like nonfiction, like what is holiness, you know, or Peter Kreeft, like on being holy, but what fiction. So everybody I could, I'd, I'd ask them like, have you ever seen a literature character that pursued holiness that taught you how to be holy? Like, where did you see that? So my bookshelves just started being filled with that. And I, mm-hmm. I spent the last six or seven years reading those. Uh, and these are, I mean, you, you cover uh, a, a lot of works from a lot of different, different countries and traditions. I mean, well, mm-hmm. not, you got uh, Loris mm-hmm. from Russia. Yeah. What, is that a, tra- is that book translated from Russian or is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. Okay. So Vodoloshkin always writes in Russian. Uh-huh. Um, Dostoevsky, more Russians. Mm-hmm. Bernanos, French. Yep. Uh, some Americans, I'm happy to report. Yeah, there's some O'Connor and there's some Brits who also write in English. So I do some Graham Greene and some C.S. Lewis. And, yeah. Um, then more well, Americans, Book at the Duncal. Yeah, there you go. Yep. Uh, Walker Percy. Yeah, Ernest Gaines, A Lesson Before Dying. Yeah. Yeah, Tony, uh, the, I have the Moses Man in the Mountains, Oriel Hurston. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so. good stuff in there. I, I loved, um, I, I love what you're doing, and, and I think one one I guess where I want to start, um, 
or where I want to go next, because I guess we've already started, is, is the idea that you're not just talking about, you're talking about reading fiction as a way of becoming more holy, not merely in terms of um, here are some, you know, uh, some figures that we can aspire to or some figures that, that might inspire us to be more mm-hmm. holy. But you, you make the case that in the act of reading, you can tell me if I'm summarizing you fairly, mm-hmm. in the act of reading, um, there is something happening to us, right? It's not just here's a role model, although you talk about, you certainly do talk about that, but more than here's a role model, it's the act of reading. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I think about those people in my life that are, you know, real. (laughs) It's hard for me to even distinguish between real and fictional because so much of the fictional becomes real to me. But, you know, my great grandfather was, uh, Church of Christ guy, East Texas, who read the Bible every single day. And uh, he lived through, you know, his farming, his relationships with people locally. And that that was his world. And so all of his role models were local. It was his dad. It was um, his neighbors. It was his pastor. And those are the people who taught him what it meant to be a good human being. And more and more, the culture that we live in, we're probably more saturated with whatever media or whatever culture around us shows us how to live. Hmm. And so what I worry about sometimes is that we, we don't have those relationships, those models and those friends locally as much as we should. And instead we're filling our, our streaming or our eyes or um, what is saturating or cultivating our imagination with television models. And those are people that, that start becoming our friends and heroes. And I don't, I'm not, sure. I'm always trying to be diplomatic. Maybe I shouldn't be diplomatic. I don't think those are good models, most of what people watch and see out there. And instead, if we could replace those with these characters and litter our imagination with good things, I think we would, we would, we would find ourselves in better company. And as the scriptures say, right, um, the bad company corrupts good character, but good company can do the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, You say, uh, you quote Lewis, that if you don't read good books, you're going to read other books. Yeah. Yeah. You'll read bad ones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and there's also the, the issue of just even apart from the content of the mm-hmm. social media or television that we stream, let's just, let's stick to social media, mm-hmm. what it does to our, to our, to our brains and our, and the way, you know, the, the way we're re we're being rewired, mm-hmm. um, you know, just at the neurological level is it yeah. is a, I mean the at least reading a long novel is doing something to your that makes you makes you better able to use your brain instead yeah. of well you know Karen Swallow Pryor in on reading well I thought did a great job about drawing from Aristotle and she talks about the ways that Aristotle says going to the theater those experiences become your experiences right you live mm-hmm. vicariously through that and Pryor points out that um cognitive science has actually backed this up. So our experiences, the things that we read actually become part of our experiences viscerally. I mean, they become part of us. So if we are reading these great books, I don't think it's a stretch to say that Zosima becomes part of the way I understand what it means to be a Christian, right? Mm -hmm. He becomes one of the friends and mentors and disciples to me in my imagination in a really strong way. So are you talking about... I mean, are, are we just talking about role models? Are we talking about if 
if you read mm-hmm. the right things, you've got the right role models. And that's, is that your main point here in this, in this book? It, it is part of it. You know, the book I'm currently writing is about how to read. <laughs> so that's uh-huh. for 2023. Okay. And so I don't think it's only what you read. Mm-hmm. I also think it's how you read. But if you are a pious Christian, if you are someone who wants to live like Christ, I do believe that reading books in which you see examples, you see narratives about how that philosophy is embodied, mm-hmm. how these people actually live out their faith. I do think that that's efficacious to use the word that you said Lauren says in the foreword, right? Yeah. Um, but I do think it's efficacious. I think that you start having these models in your imagination, uh-huh. Right? And you start living like these friends. Yeah. So you, you, you mentioned, uh, you've mentioned imagination. That's such an important part of what you're, mm-hmm. you know, what's going on here. Um, and you know, I, I, I often say imagination in, in, a, in terms of its value for us spiritually, it's not merely a matter of a, 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 you know, having imaginary friends, although you are talking about having imaginary friends. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, and so that's, that's, uh, I stand corrected. That's an important part of, of the process is having the right kind of imaginary friends and maybe not, you know, Logan Roy and in that crowd, um, or at least in addition to, to the Roy family and, and succession or whatever. But, but the, um, but also imagination is a matter of, of seeing things that are truer than what we see with our eyeballs. Um, and Absolutely. understanding, you know, hearing, having ears to hear a, a, a truer story and a better story than the one the mm-hmm. world is telling us. Right. I, this is where C.S. Lewis, you know, he was so influential on the way that I conceive of imagination. Because in the Christian tradition, we're always talking about faith and reason, but we don't realize it's a trinity. And everything has to be a trinity, right? I mean, that's where we're coming from. So it has to be faith, reason, and imagination. And Lewis talks about imagination being the organ of meaning and intellect being the organ of truth. So imagination gives you the parameters for the significance of what it is that you see. Mm-hmm. And so a, a strong imagination doesn't mean you can just uh, come up with different illusions and come up with the fantasies. It means you know how to see something and make a meaning of it. You mm-hmm. see its meaning there. And yeah. I think that's why narratives are so key. Yeah. It's, um, it, I'm sure you can, you can pull up the quotation so I'll let you pull up the quotation. Okay. Uh, uh, but you talk about uh, the idea that uh, I'm, I'm completely, completely losing it now. Oh, oh the, the, you say we imagine ourselves, you're quoting somebody who I now don't remember who. We imagine ourselves within a story in a certain way that affects our dispositions, loves, and behaviors. Mm-hmm. We have to know what kind of story. Alistair McIntyre. Alistair yes. Yeah. yes, we have to know what kind of story we're a part of in order to know how we are to act, right? We have to ask, what story am I in in order to know how to act? Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, and so reading the right books puts us in a position to, to know what kind of story we're in or, mm-hmm. or even theorize perhaps a, a better story than, than the one we see with our eyeballs. Absolutely. I mean, imagination is also, in that sense, it helps you practice the virtue of hope, right? Because you have to both know the past, you have to know the tradition, and that is a a faculty of imagination, right? That kind of knowing, because you know all the stories, you know God and how he interacted with his people throughout the tradition. And then you have to imagine 
the covenants that he's promised. You have to imagine what that could look like in the future. So you have to know more than just what is in the moment. You have to imagine the ought. And that imagination of ought can't be ex nihilo. It has to come from somewhere. It has to be informed by something. So we, we need these narratives that cultivate our imagination so we can see the future and thus have the virtue of hope, practice it. Yeah, I, I love it. So, so the imagination has a direct relationship to the past, to memory, history. Absolutely, absolutely, as well as to the present. But the present, I think we are, you know, C.S. Lewis writes something like this in the Screwtape Letters, that we are too concerned with presentism, right? We mm-hmm. limit ourselves in the moment, and that's where a lot of sin comes from. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we can see the past, future, and the present all together, we have this this breadth of vision that lets us act morally and responsibly. Yeah, yeah, and in, imagination is connected to desire, right? I mean, we, it, it's yes. connected to what we want. Um, it, it it opens us up to wanting some better things for ourselves and for the world mm-hmm. we live in, and and those kinds of things. And it's so, absolutely. Uh, you know, I mentioned this in my book, but it's one of my favorite examples. And it came to me when I was teaching a class that Elie Wiesel, if you were able to read the chapter on C.S. Lewis and that hideous strength, in, in the opening, I talk about Wiesel. And Wiesel is a great illustration of Lewis's abolition of man, in which he says a human person is tripartite. There goes our turn go. again, right? It, we're not just brains. We're not just guts, we have hearts. Mm -hmm. And in Elie Wiesel, when he was in the concentration camps, he had this moment where he was um, really, you know, his father was dying, his father was not going to make it out, and he went to go get the food ration for his dad, and he had a moment of crisis because his gut told him, just eat the other food ration. Mm -hmm. And his head reasoned, your dad would even want you to eat it. But it was his imagination that had cultivated a heart in him that understood and imagined the relationship he had with his father and the piety, mm. right, that he felt towards his father that that overruled that head and that gut instinct, right? Yeah. And yeah. And, and, and in Abolition of Man, you know, Lewis says, if you don't have the heart, then the brain is going to always be in service of the yes. belly. Yes, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And so the heart is, he said, it's, um, it is the seed of the human person. Like it's what makes us human. And that to me, that heart is trained by the imagination. And Lewis says something like that in abolition of man as well. So we have to be reading these great stories and, and, and you see this in the world. I mean, your podcast for writers, one of the reasons I love it is because I feel like writers and poets have such a necessary role in culture that is being overlooked by most people. You know, they really are crafting our heart. And if people want to say, you know, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world is that the heart is not being crafted. Mm-hmm. We have lots of things yeah. talking to people's guts and lots of things talking to people's heads. And yeah. we are not cultivating strong imaginations and beautiful hearts. Um, so what do you have to say to writers about cultivating the heart as distinct from the, the head and the belly? Yeah. You know, I believe that the practice of writing, of course, there's a lot of craft to it, but it has to also come from strong imaginations. And I have a friend who recently wrote a book on C.S. Lewis about how the great books formed Lewis, mm-hmm. which I just, it, it's uh, it's an IVP book. And I think that's a great way of looking at how Lewis was created, like how Lewis was made was by all these great books. And writers are wary of that. There's too much you know, Harold Bloom's anxiety of influence over writers where they think in order to be original or to find their voice, they don't have to read everything that came before them. Uh And instead there's some really great 
evidence out there. You know, you have the um, Image SPU program, which has you read all of these great Catholic and Orthodox and Protestant Christian authors, if that's what kind of imagination you want to have and what kind of writing you want to foster. And you have the MFA program at St. Thomas, right? Writing in a tradition. You do your um, writing like Flannery O'Connor. So it's not writing needs to be seen more and more um, as imitate, imitated yeah. to be strong rather than I'm going to just produce original works, yeah. you know? Yeah. No, I, I love the, the way you talk about um, uh, imitation, you know, that, 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 that is that our formation is imitation and mm-hmm. that it always has been. None of us have ever learned how to speak any language <laughs> without imitating somebody. Right. Right. Yeah, I know. I'm so Girardian. I mean, he influenced me so much in grad school and I just have never been able to get away from it. But it does make sense of the world that you have to imitate. Um, There was this really great book I read last year about imitation. Mm -hmm. And it was Mary Carruthers. She was saying that you don't invent and then organize and then correct your style and then memorize your speech and like deliver your speech or deliver your work. Instead, memory precedes all of that Mm. so that invention is actually, it comes from inventire from Latin, like to take inventory of what you already have memorized. What's already on your heart, right? Yeah. And that's what you're producing from. And so that all of the great works that you're going to produce or you're going to write is going to come from what's written on your heart, what what you've memorized. Somehow I never knew that connection between invention and inventory. Yeah. Yeah. That is great. I know it was mind blowing for me last year. Like it's just that paradigm has stuck with me, especially as a creative writing teacher, which is not what she's doing, but that's where I went with it was, whoa, creative writing students. Like this is justification for you to memorize the good and true and beautiful things that came before you. Yeah. Okay. I I, I broached the topic of desire and desire and imagination. And uh, I want to go back to Father Zosima from, um, from Brothers K. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I love something you said about him because you're, you, you, the context was you, you're saying, Hey, apologetics, I got no problem with apolog- apologetics is great. You know, so is in, any kind of, you know, reason based way of talking about the faith. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you read father Zosima, you mm-hmm. want to be like father Zosima. And then you can later think about how and why. Yeah, but but that that triggering of desire by way of story and imagination mm-hmm. um, is um, you take it from there. Well, absolutely. So you know, I teach all these great books classes, and these students are well. Nietzsche says this. Well, then Kant says this, and there's all this arguing going on. And at the end of the day, you have to ask them, okay, how do you how do you live? Mm-hmm. So maybe you find some things that Nietzsche said were right. did you want to live like Nietzsche? Like, did that produce the kind of good life that you have envisioned for yourself? And that's the question that's that, you know, as a teacher, I'm always thinking students, that's the, that's the question you can't walk away from. Mm -hmm. And as writers, you may come up with these really great arguments, great ideology, but ideology doesn't become good story. And it never has. You, you can't, I mean, Flannery O'Connor says that too all the time, right? You can't have a message for your audience. You can't have this didactic approach to fiction and the same with all great stories what does it look like to live well mm-hmm. right to have a beautiful life and that's what changes people's hearts i mean that's what they desire they want to live like someone yeah um 
you know, I, I've said before that, that in the Narnia book, C.S. Lewis doesn't say, now, kids, it's really important to stay warm. And, you know, he said he builds a fire and says, doesn't that feel good? Yes. And you feel yes. it and you say, that does feel good. I would like to live more like that. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the silver chair, probably the most didactic section still could not be understood without the metaphor of the sun. You know, this, yeah. these ideas, these images that are still present, even when what looks like just a dialogue between like Puddle Glum and the witch or something. Um, yeah. It has so much to do with the sounds and the music and the image of the sun. And, you know, we just, we can't abstract these arguments from uh, the visuals and the senses and the things that, that they give us to hold on to. Yeah. Um, so who were the, who were the literary saints that, that, you, that made you desire something different? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I know everybody in your book, but like who from, <laughs> who's, who's an early one that you remember that, that you read that and thought, okay, this is, this is more like what I want to live like. Yeah. I- I, I mean, this is going to sound outrageous, but Flannery O'Connor was my first one mm-hmm. because, and it is going to sound outrageous um, yes, because a lot yes. of people can't stand Mrs. Greenleaf. Mm-hmm. And she, to me, was the first intimation I had that Christianity should look different. It was the first time that I understood what it meant that you will look like a fool in the eyes of the world. It was such a clear visual with her wanting to hug the earth and crying over the stories in the newspaper. And yeah, I maybe thought there's a little more con- back up just a little bit. Okay. So Mrs. Okay, I admit it. I don't know who Ms. Greenleaf is. So help me out here. <laughs> Sorry. So, okay. So Mrs. Greenleaf is a poor um, field hands wife in the story green. It's titled Greenleaf, but it begins with Mrs. May. And so the whole, a lot of people focus on the, the story that takes place with Mrs. May and she gets gored by a bull at the end. And that kind of leaves an impression on people reading Flannery. For me, reading Flannery, the title character is Greenleaf. So when Mrs. Greenleaf comes on the stage, my eyes just went straight towards her. Mm-hmm. And in the story, she's shrieking like a prophetess or something, mm-hmm. right? In the will, like she's out in the fields. She's shrieking, Jesus stabbed me in the heart. I'll try not to use an accent. Jesus stabbed me in the heart. Oh, Jesus stabbed me in the heart. And Mrs. May comes upon her and says, you know, Jesus would be ashamed of you. Like get up and go wash your children's clothes. So she's living not with the mundane things, having the priority in her life. Instead, she's taken all these newspaper stories of like train wrecks and abused children and the divorces of movie stars, which is just Flannery kind of being funny, and and cutting it up and putting it in the earth and burying it and then soaking it in prayer, Mm -hmm. right? I loved that image, Uh, really giving back to the creator to do something with these prayers with these pains, with the suffering, most of us never think of that. Most of us see other people's pain. And even if we say something like, like, I'll pray for you, that's about as far as it goes. It is not, I'm going to get on my knees. I'm going to return it to God. Uh, That just was, that made such an impression on me. I, I read it probably 16, 17 years old, and it just stuck with me for a long time. Uh, still, I mean, still has. That's probably one of the the biggest images I had of what it meant to be a fool for Christ. Wow. So. Yeah. That the the um, the holy fool. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about the holy fool. 
Let's oh, man. I yeah. idea and I, 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 I still can't get my head around what it means kind of in, mm-hmm. the, in the Russian tradition. I know it's, mm-hmm. it's important to the Russians. Mm-hmm. Talk me through the Holy Cool. Yeah, it's so great because, you know, and this is probably also why I like Nietzsche. I just taught Nietzsche this week, so he's on my mind. But, you know, this is also why I like Nietzsche because Nietzsche is saying, all of you guys don't live, like, you don't love Jesus anymore, but you're still telling me I have to follow Victorian virtues. Like, what in the world? Like, that's so hypocritical. If if God doesn't matter anymore, why do these virtues matter? Get rid of them. So the reason I'm bringing that up, because that might seem like it's not connected. It is. I think we have this tendency to conform, even in our faith, to the manners that are disconnected from what we actually love and believe. And so when I look at the holy fool, the holy fool is is kind of a Nietzschean character where he, but he believes in God. He's doing it for the sake of God, that mm-hmm. he's going out and busting up idols within the church that most Christians don't even know they started paying homage to because they thought they were being good Christians, but they let all of the manners and the, um, t- you know, the typical conformities of their day overrule what should be more important. Yeah. Like Ms. May saying, Jesus will be ashamed of you. Yes, exactly. Right. Like what Jesus really cares about is is cleanliness and, and hard work. And, and, you know, Jesus cares about all of those things, not what you're doing. Yeah. And so the Holy fool cast all those out. So the Holy fool loves God in a way that shocks people that looks insane, looks crazy. Um, In the Russian tradition, it was more extreme. The Holy fool took the sins of the people upon him. Like he became the sin for the people so they could see what they were doing. So he became this kind of mirror that sometimes from our perspective will look negative. It'll, it'll mm. look bad. Um, but what he was trying to do is take all the sins upon himself so that he could be scapegoated. He could be assaulted. And thus the, the people in the town, it was like performance. It was like a miracle play or something. He was performing for the town so they could get rid of their sin, like expiate. Uh-huh. Um, so that was the role in the Russian tradition, which is a little bit different in the way that it starts appearing in the American tradition. So, you know, stinking Lizaveta in Brothers Karamazov is kind of the quintessential holy fool. Every, everyone ridicules her. Everyone makes fun of her. Um, and yet she plays this, this role in the narrative uh, where her sacrifice, mm-hmm. you know, brings forth these other things. So, yeah. Okay. I, I got one more question about holy fools. I love Holy Fools. Go for it. Okay. Are they strictly a literary thing or were there Holy Fools kicking around? There were Holy Fools. Yeah. So it really was something they performed. So in the same way, you know, in the British tradition, you have those miracle plays where people would like knock on your door and they would perform a little play in front of your household. And that was kind of something that happened in in the Middle Ages. The same kind of thing was happening in Russia in its own version. Right. So you have these these characters who were performing aspects of your faith out loud, so to speak in front of the whole town. Uh And they became ways of, of seeing, I mean, you have to remember like you don't, you don't have gladiatorial games anymore. You know, (laughs) thank God, like you don't have the, the same kind of theater or theatricals. And so you had the church performed theatrical roles in different ways. And, um, the saints, performed in, in, in various ways. I would say it, it really was performance, but it showed up differently in all different cultures. Mm-hmm. So in the Russian culture, it, it performed as a holy fool. Uh-huh. Okay. Thank <laughs> you for that little mini lesson on the holy fool. I, I'm, I'm being self-indulgent here by taking up 
podcast time to ask about something that. that I <laughs> well, and I will say, I mean, just literarily and for those who are writers, it can be very inspiring for fiction to take on the holy fool idea in writing it as fiction. Because mm-hmm. like Flannery said, for you know the blind, you have to draw the large startling figures. So these holy fools end up being that in fiction. So it's a really great trope. It's a really great way of writing. You know, um, John Kennedy Tool does this in uh, Confederacy of Dunces. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Frederick Beekner does it in Godric. Yeah. So there are people that have done this well as a character. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, okay. Again, since I've got you, we got to talk about, um, you know, Augustine wasn't too big on fiction. <laughs> right? I mean, well, Augustine, Augustine was felt really, really bad. And, and as far as I know, never really got, you know, never really changed his mind on the fact that he, that the fact that he wept for Dido in the Aeneid, he, he thought of that as, as, you know, a really, you know, I was weeping for Dido and I wasn't weeping for my own sins. I wasn't weeping yeah. for the sins of the world. And that was his, you know, the, the way he, he speaks of the dangers of, mm-hmm fiction. So who should I believe? Jessica Wilson or St. Augustine? I don't know. So that's actually an incorrect reading of Augustine. So okay, <laughs> let me correct the reading of Augustine because I love teaching confessions. So Augustine is concerned with how he responded to uh, Dido and Aeneid at that point. And the fact that he was weeping more for Dido than he was for his sins was a problematic response to the Aeneid. Mm-hmm. but he's not castigating the Aeneid. So if you look at confessions, it's actually structured just like the Aeneid. Mm-hmm. So the better response to the Aeneid is to imitate it and turn it to God. Mm-hmm. So the confessions, right, he follows the same journey as Aeneas. Okay. I don't know if you noticed that. No. He goes from his home to Carthage. Yeah to Rome, right? Okay. And then it becomes a new home. So like he follows this, this structure. Um, he even has like the, you know, the loss of the friend. He has some of the episodes where he's actually imitating Aeneas. The, the conversations with Monica are very, they're parallel to Aeneas's conversations with his mother. Like he, he imitates him. Uh-huh. That, and it even, you know, if you read the confessions closely, his whole idea of imitation is key to why he becomes a Christian. Mm-hmm. So actually what he's saying is you read things like the Aeneid and you don't just end with weeping over the characters. You give it back to God and turn it into an imitative art, both imitation in your life and imitation in what you create. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that the confessions actually lines up really well with what it is that I'm trying to do. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. And that's, you know, if you read De Doctrina, he explains that more where he talks about how to read pagan literature, how to take from it what is good and give that back to God. Is, is that uh, where he talks about um, the, you're like Tinkle. a bee where you go around and you, you. Yeah, that actually, well, that's St. Ba- that's St. Basil the Great that does oh, the okay. bee metaphor, right? That you just like take different things and turn it into honey. Um, but Augustine does the Egyptian gold metaphor where he looks back at Exodus and he says, God told them to take Egyptian gold yeah. out of Egypt. And then later he has them turn it into altars for him. Uh-huh. Yeah, so yeah, you yeah. take what you can from the pagans 
and then you give it back to God in a different way. And that's what he would think about for reading. So that's why it's also, you can read things like Nietzsche. You can read stories like Willa Cather, who wasn't a Christian, or I read Zora Neale Hurston. They aren't Christians that I take what they're working with and I give it back to God. I show how no matter what, you can take these things that are good and give them to God because wherever something is good, it belongs to God anyways. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> uh, makes me think of a, a person I knew who had their doubts about trick-or-treating. You know, it used to be mm-hmm. years ago, people were, you know, much more, uh, I guess in the 90s, people had more issues with trick-or-treating than yeah. these days. <laughs> But they ended up, they, they came down on the side of, of basically it's plundering the Egyptians. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, well, the, uh, here, you know, I, I thought where you were going to be going with, with Augustine and Dido was, was the idea that, that we, it, if it turns out that we are better, we do a better job of, reacting emotionally to fiction than real life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess probably this is what you were, you were saying. That's, that's not, it, we're still exercising our muscles of compassion, mm-hmm. of empathy, of, of these kinds of, these kinds of things. And so, you know, when, when uh, Hamlet gets on to Claudius or doesn't, mm-hmm. he, he kind of bad mouth him, I guess, I don't guess he's getting on to him, but, but uh you know, they've put on the play about, about Hecuba. And he says, what is Hecuba to him or he, or he to Hecuba? Yes. And, but the fact that he, that the, 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 the king at least can mourn over Hecuba is something Mm -hmm. (laughs) better than than being unable to mourn for anything. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I do believe that fiction becomes a, a lab for the practice of virtue. I very much think that. A lab, say w- one more sentence about that. <laughs> At least one more sentence about that. <laughs> sure. sure. Fiction becomes a lab for the practice of virtue in that um, when you get to show patience for certain characters as they're developing and growing and you want things to end up well for them, even if they're testing your patience by their vicious actions or their um, mistakes that they're making, you're getting to practice that. And then when you go out into the world, you have practiced. I mean, it is a spiritual practice then. Um, Or if you're showing generosity to some of the worst of characters, can you then translate that into your life and show generosity towards people who maybe aren't acting the way you want them to act or aren't being the way you want them to be? So I do think it is a lab for that. I think it's a way of us getting to um, hopefully become better than we are by ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think it, I think it, it has been my experience that that, that does translate. Mm-hmm. Exercising too. those muscles does actually find its way into the world. It doesn't always, and it's, it's right. not always. Uh, but I, I do think I, my capacity for, um, you know, being more generous in my mm-hmm. what I think about other people has has grown very much as a result of. I mean, to the extent that it has grown, I'm not saying it has grown very much. I'm saying to yeah. the extent that it has grown, a lot of that has come from reading and from um, and from exercising those muscles. Yeah, and I think mine. Ha- I mean, I know mine has too. I mean, I've been produ- I've been transformed so much by literature in this way, but I am becoming more and more convinced it has to begin there too. Like you have to want to practice piety, you have to want to practice humility, and then those things can be such a resource. 
Right. But I, but I think that if you're, you know, a maniacal deviant who tries to read the Aeneid, you're also going to see like, Oh, will to power, I can overcome a country. And right. So it it has to be, it has to begin in piety. And then Mm. as you're reading, these things can bolster that piety. Um, But Uh you can't be a crazy person and just, you know, read good books and become a non-crazy person. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. All right. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for, for being here. That, that was, this has been fun. And, and uh, right when, you, when your next book comes out, we'll do it again. How about that? <laughs> Anytime, friend. I, I love being on here. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. The Habit Podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To check out more of our podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcast. Our work at The Rabbit Room would be impossible without the generous support of our membership. If you'd like to learn more about membership at The Rabbit Room, visit rabbitroom.com slash member. And thanks for listening. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.